Hello and welcome to the Vet Polio Podcast Series, Purring Medicine, brought to you by Merck Animal Health. We're pleased that you've joined us to explore the topic of Think Like a Cat, Why Cats Get Stressed, with our guest speaker, Dr. Margie Shirk. Dr. Shirk graduated from the Ontario Veterinary College in 1982, and in 1986, she opened Cats Only Veterinary Clinic in Vancouver, practicing there until 2008. Dr. Shirk became board certified in feline practice by the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners in 1995 and then recertified in 2004. An active international speaker, Dr. Shirk has authored numerous book chapters and scientific papers and is the North American editor of the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery. Dr. Shirk, we'd like to turn things over to you. Thank you for joining me for this podcast. I'm really excited to be here, and I hope that you come away with some really useful and practical tips to help you make your practice more cat-friendly and keep them coming back. So while most cats come into our practices when they're first adopted, many don't return until they become sick. Why is this? In fact, we know from data showing that 83% of owners bring their cats to the vet within their first year of adoption, whether they're kittens or adults. 82% have a regular veterinary practice, and 90% of those people are either completely or somewhat satisfied. So they're not inherently averse to veterinary care. Yet, we see them in that first year, and then what we have happened is what I like to call the lost years. People don't bring their cats back in until they're sick. So we need to change that culture. So what are the challenges? Why is that do we have this gap? Well, some of the reasons are that cats don't like coming into the clinic. Clients don't like bringing them into the clinic, and sometimes we actually don't like seeing them all that much if they're um, difficult for us to work with. So in these two sessions, you're going to learn about these challenges and what steps we can take to start to overcome them. The challenges to overcome in order to become cat-friendly are that, number one, cats hide their illness. Two, clients don't understand the need for preventive health care, even if they think they do, especially if they have indoor cats. They think, by and large, that cats are self-sufficient and low-maintenance. The third challenge is that cats and clients don't like coming into the clinic. The whole process of getting to the clinic is distressing. The fourth challenge is that neither the client nor the cat, I suspect, like the clinic experience, what we do and how we do it. The fifth challenge is that many of us are less comfortable with cats than we are with dogs, and so we use excuses like it's less stressful if we don't get them in as often, or we sedate them in order to get them out and get them home again more quickly, rather than looking at the underlying reasons why a cat is behaving the way they are and what we might be able to do, be more cat-friendly, in order to make the experience less stressful for everybody, the cat, the client, and ourselves. And then the kicker is, is that after we put the cat and the client through all of this, we make them pay for all this. That sort of seems like, yeah, let's go to Baskin Robbins, and instead of getting ice cream, let's get a cone full of razor blades, and we get to pay for it. So it doesn't really like a a fun time. I'm going to start talking about thinking like a cat, why cats get stressed. For that, we need to look at what's the essence of being a cat. What is their telos? Why do they react the way they do? So in this podcast, we're going to look at the basic inherent need for self-defense in this small predator and how that translates into how they behave. Also going to look at recognizing the relationship between the cat and their person because whenever we're dealing with an upset cat, we've got the client attached with that too and their emotions, the cat is their partner. 
part of their family. They love their cat. They feel responsible for the cat's upset, which had to be overridden by their sense of responsibility to bring the cat in in the first place. They feel frightened when their cat's upset. They feel helpless. They may feel hopeless if their cat's sick, and they also experience guilt. There are different beliefs and realities. The belief is that cats are self-sufficient, that they are low-maintenance, that they have few needs, and that they're easy to keep indoors. The reality, however, is that cats actually are solitary hunters. And this fact that they are solitary hunters shapes everything about them. It shapes not only their behavior, it actually has shaped their anatomy and their physiology. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. Cats feel safe when things are predictable, when they feel that they're in control and nothing's threatening them. Well, why is that? Because while we think of cats as being predators, they are actually prey. Yes, they predate on small birds and mice, but notice that I said small birds, because when we're talking about large birds, and even birds as large as small or large, depending on how you want to look at it, as crows, ravens will pick on cats and can kill them. So cats are actually prey as well. And because of that, and because of what they eat, the fact that they are obligatory carnivores and that their meals are small rodents, rabbits, small birds, insects, frogs, reptiles, things like that, because they are such small meals, they can't live in a community with other cats. They have to hunt alone and eat alone. They can't bring home one mouse and divvy it up amongst a family of ten. This is critical when we look at how cats have evolved behaviorally. Because they have to hunt and eat on their own, it means that they need to maintain their critical resource area or their territory. They have to protect that food resource from others, from invading their territory. As a consequence, they've developed a huge spectrum of elaborate displays of physical body language to make other individuals, other cats or other animals, stay away from them. And this is what we encounter in the clinic. More on that as we go. So in a clinic setting, we have a cat who may be laid back, may be really frightened and timid and hiding, or we have a cat who is uh, feels the need to defend themselves. And we use words like grumpy or aggressive or fractious or dangerous or caution or Satan cat or whatever you want to say it. And we really need to look at changing our languaging on that. We really need to look at changing that to self-defensive because that changes how we interpret the behavior and interact with the cat. So cats have these self-defensive behaviors because they have evolved as small prey relative to other species to protect an area, a territory, to have enough to fend for their resources. Cats are easily threatened, and when they feel threatened, their first line of defense is to flee. Well, in a clinic, we don't give them that option. So if they can't flee, then they freeze, and those are the cats we go, oh, it's okay, kitty, we won't hurt you, too. And then we've got the, if they can't, if they aren't of the inclination to freeze, they fight. They defend themselves, and those are the cats to whom we're inclined to react saying, give me another set of hands, give me gloves, I need backup sort of thing. So we react or interact very differently towards those cats who are defending themselves versus those cats who are freezing. You know the saying, you are what you eat. This is so, so critical in, or so true in cats. I already said they're obligatory carnivores. I said they eat very small meals. Cats need approximately 
approximately 50 kilocalories per kilogram ideal body weight per day. The average mouse has about 30 to 35 calories. If a 5 kilogram or 11 pound cat needing 50 kilocalories per kilogram per day, that's 250 calories, that means that if a mouse is 30 calories, they need about 8 meals a day. That's 8 to 10 small meals a day. And when they hunt, they don't walk up to a bowl in nature that's filled with 8 or 10 freshly killed mice. They need to hunt, eat, digest, groom themselves, sit on wherever they're sitting, the fence or wherever, listening for the next potential meal, as well as listening to make sure they don't become somebody's meal. So they're very busy. They have very active minds. They're constantly moving because next meal that they do here, they may not score on. That prey animal may get away. And it's been shown that cats, it may take up to 15 attempts for every kill. That's a lot of exercise these cats are getting if they're going to have 8 to 10 small meals a day. It also indicates that grazing feeding behavior is normal for cats. They should be eating 8 to 10 small meals a day not having the free refills bowl available all the time. In addition, I talked about the fact that it shapes their anatomy as well as their physiology, and I don't really have time in this podcast to touch on that, but it's very true, and I find it fascinating that the fact that cats are prey animals who are small predators and eat very small meals, meaning that they have to live apart on their own, how that's affected not just behavior but also anatomy and physiology. So the implications of resource dependence are that there's no hierarchy. Cats don't need to kowtow to anybody. They don't need to take turns. They don't need to cooperate. They have very few appeasement behaviors. They're really, really good at saying, stay away from me. But they have a hard time at cooperating and letting other cats share their space, unless they grew up with those other cats. Keeping distance is essential. And they need to be able to control their environment so that they don't feel threatened. And that's why one of the pillars of an appropriate environment for a cat is their ability to get away, to observe from high uh, where they're not seen, and predict what may be coming and if they need to clear out, i.e. run away. All of their communications, their body language, which is, of course, visual communication for the other cat sees that visually, their olfactory communications, their auditory communications, and their tactile communications are, a lot of it is evolved around maintaining social groups as well as maintaining distance. Because if an individual who lives on their own is not able to keep a threatening individual away from them and they get into a fight, that cat is injured. And if that cat is injured, he or she can no longer get the groceries, bring them home, and take care of themselves. They have to hide their illness until such time as they can't hide it anymore. And then they go away to try and nurse themselves, knowing that they're not going to be fed. There's nobody to feed them. And that's where we mistakenly consider that they're taking themselves away to die. That's not the case at all. So cats hide their illness because they mustn't seem vulnerable. They have to maintain distance so that they don't get into fights. So let's look at the relationship that people have with their cats. I've already said that they love their cats. They feel responsible for their well-being. They feel responsible for how upset the cat is. If their cat's sick, they feel frightened, helpless, hopeless, and they also feel guilty about subjecting their cat to the stress or emotional stress that the cat experiences in the clinic. On top of that, clients don't see the need for all of this preventive health care stuff. They dislike their role as a capturer who wants to 
be, they feel guilty. They dislike the pre-visit experience, stuffing their cat in a carrier and car ride in. And by the time they arrive, they're trying to look cool, calm, and collected as they walk in through the clinic door. But internally, they may be a little disheveled. And they've had to deal with the cat in the car who, first off, was resistant to get into the carrier. And then in the car, that cat was maybe yowling, maybe urinating, defecating, releasing their anal glands, vomiting, all of these lovely things, anything that is disgusting. And they're also embarrassed by their cat's behaviors in the clinic. I'm sure you've had clients say to you, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. He's never like this at home. They also dread the return home. He's going to make me pay for that. These are some of the concerns or perspectives from the client's point of view. They don't recognize the subtle signs of sickness. They don't recognize the subtle signs of pain. We need to teach clients how to recognize pain before their cat is in pain. It's not just enough to teach clients how to recognize if their cat's painful after a procedure or while they're ill. Why don't we instead teach them what pain looks like before their cat becomes ill, and then they can recognize it and bring their cat in. So empathic observation. In fact, more than empathic, even bold enough to be subjective in your or the client's observation. What are these subtle signs of sickness? I talked a little bit about pain, but the subtle signs of sickness, these being subtle because the cat can't show that they're vulnerable. One of them is inappropriate elimination. Well, it doesn't sound so subtle, but it is a sign of sickness. When a cat is eliminating inappropriately, be it urine or feces, they are telling us something. And it could be that they're telling us that they have a physical owie or they have an emotional mental owie. And so we must pay attention to that. And it's really, really important that we teach our clients to pick up on this before they get fed up with it and to talk with us about it early on. I'll talk a bit more about that in a while. Changes in interaction. This is the second subtle sign of sickness. Changes in interaction. Somebody who is more interactive, more clingy than they used to be, less interactive than they used to be. That's a sign that their cat is having trouble. Changes in activity. You know the client who's thrilled that, gosh, doc, Joey is, I'm so pleased with him. He's 15 and he's never been this active before. Look at him. He's just jumping around the place. And you and I are thinking, oh, my gosh, this cat's probably hyperthyroid, whereas the client thinks this is just great. So increased activity, decreased activity, changes in sleeping habits, sleeping more, sleeping less, sleeping more interrupted patterns, or sleeping in different locations. Changes in food and water consumption. They may be eating more or less, or it may be how they eat. Again, this may be somebody who used to gorge and eat their entire meal and now is nibbling at it instead. Drinking more water, drinking less water, not drinking out of the bowl, drinking out of the faucet now. These are all of these things that have changes. Bad breath. Is that bad breath because of the mouth? Is it because of the anal glands and cat grooming themselves? Is it because of some illness in their intestinal tract or in their upper intestinal tract? Unexplained weight loss or gain. You know, Doc, I'm really pleased. Joey's finally losing all that weight that he's been carrying all this time. And even though I've been paying for that really expensive weight loss food for all these years, it looks like it's finally working. So again, we're wanting to pay attention to unexplained weight loss or unexplained weight gain. Changes in grooming. Maybe they're grooming more now. Maybe they've got more hairballs. Maybe they're grooming less. Maybe they've got clumps of hair over their dorsal tail base. And because they can't turn around to groom themselves there due to arthritis or due to obesity or maybe they're not grooming because their mouth hurts. 
signs of stress, somebody who's agitated, somebody whose tail is flicking more, their whisker position is different, their ear position is different. Changes in vocalization, crying more, crying less, nighttime yowling. All of these things, these ten things, are subtle signs of sickness. And it's really helpful to put those up on your website, put them on Facebook one a week or something like this, put them on your invoices, and for things for people to look for. And the key here with these subtle signs of sickness are look for changes. So clients don't recognize the subtle signs of sickness. They aren't aware that they need preventive health care, even though they think they are. There's this myth that indoor cats are free from risks. In fact, the whole concept of indoor cat, I've got air quotation marks around that, is somewhat dubious. I once had a staff person who lived in an apartment building, six-story or something like that, and she would go home after work, and she would go down the hall in her apartment building to visit her friend and take her cats with her. And her cats and her friend's cats would interact in the hallway. Yes, they are. Their feet never step outside, but they are not technically indoor cats because that friend's cat would sometimes board or her cats would sometimes go to grandma's over the holiday and grandma's cats went outside. Or also the story of that a colleague told me of a strictly indoor cat who would go on leash and harness down to the mailbox every day with his person. And then also apartment cats who get out on balcony, who get out on roof decks, as well as the fact that bats and rodents and birds can come indoors. So this is important to understand. Now, I tend to phrase the question rather than, does your cat go outside, is your cat strictly indoors, as does your cat have any contact with other animals? I also briefly mentioned boarding, also traveling, because a lot more people are traveling with their cat than used to. They don't recognize the subtle signs of sickness. They aren't aware that they need preventive health care, and it's no fun, let's face it, to take the cat to the vet the trip as well as the clinic experience. And we need to look at making the transportation of the cat from their nice, quiet, secure home to the clinic into a much friendlier, less disruptive experience. This is really important. So when a client books an appointment, we want to ask them, even if it's a client we've seen for many years, we want to ask them how they feel about bringing their cat in. Is there anything they have troubles with when they bring their cat in? Using open-ended questions to make sure that they don't just answer yes or no. And then they can talk about, nah, it's not a problem. He just climbs into his carrier and he's quiet in the car, makes a few noises, no big deal. Or me saying, oh, gosh, yes, it's, I really hate it, and he hates it, and I get scratched, and he poops all over the floor, and yada, yada, yada. So we want to make sure that we help people with that. There's some data that speaks the fact that 58% of cat parents say their cat hates visiting us. And I find that actually remarkable because I would think that it's probably a lot higher than that. When I poll a room veterinarians and veterinary staff members asking them to raise their hands if they like bringing their cat into the clinic, very, very few. I'd say that probably 2% of the participants raise their hands saying, and yet we believe in what it is that we do. We have training and know how important it is, and yet even we don't like bringing them in. Interestingly, 38% of dog parents say that their dog hates visiting us. So that was data from the same study. So how do we change this? Well, we need to educate people about how to get to the clinic, and this means starting at home and with the conversation that I already alluded to. We want to make sure that the cat feels the object that they're being transported in, I'll use the term carrier, is 
part of their normal daily environment. It's a desirable place for them to hang out. They sleep in it. They get treats in it. They just hang out in it. And then sometimes it goes into the car and with them in it. And so this becomes much less traumatic if it's an object that the cat already hangs out in at home. And thankfully, there are some carriers that don't have to look like a carrier and that you're tripping over in your living room or your dining room or your bedroom, wherever your cat likes to sleep, but rather are nice beds that have zip up on them and the elk. But a carrier with its lid taken off will also work, but it does need to be in the environment all the time. So in a document from a group called Cat Healthy that I'll mention later on as one of the resources at cathealthy.ca, we've got in that document you can find 10 or actually 9 steps to making travel less stressful. And these include always transport your cat in a cat carrier. These are steps for the client. Again, something that go on Facebook, on your website, etc. Each cat should have their own carrier. The best carrier is open from the top or front and can be taken apart so the cat can remain in the bottom for most of the exam if they wish. We want to help the cat become accustomed to the carrier by leaving it open in the house, placing toys, treats, or food inside it. Place a soft, clean towel or familiar bedding in the bottom of the carrier and have that in there all the time. Spray the carrier potentially with a facial pheromone, such as feel away 10 to 15 minutes before traveling, or wipe it. We don't want to make spraying-type noises around the cat. Plus, the carrier needs to evaporate so it doesn't smell so bad for a cat. We want to secure the carrier in the footwell of the back seat of the car to avoid movement during transportation and airbag injuries. This is important. There was a crash test dummy video done in Germany by their equivalent of the AAA or CAA looking at what happens to dogs or cats in carriers or harnessed or whatever. And it showed that if you have a cat, obviously a carrier on the back seat, Oh, or the front seat, it'll, you know, fly around. If you have it in the back seat with a seat belt through it, the seat belt will not move, but the carrier will, and it will just shatter the carrier. So the safest place is to actually put that carrier in the footwell of the back seat. If you put it elsewhere, there's a possibility of airbag crushing the carrier and killing the cat. The eighth thing is when carrying the carrier, keep it stable and horizontal, so not on a shoulder strap where it swings or even with just the handle where the cat's sliding to the back or front and it's getting rocked back and forth. And place a towel over the top of the carrier to help calm the cat and prevent other pets in the waiting room or seating area from making direct eye contact. So those are some tips to make the whole experience more cat-friendly. We also have to have a cat-friendly attitude in the clinic, and this is Everything from the premises to our body language, our tone of voice, and the way we handle cats for treatments, for exams, whatever it is. Because from the cat's perspective, this whole thing is terrifying. They remember there's somebody who has to have a nice, secure environment, very little changes. It has to still be interesting and intriguing, but predictable nonetheless. So they've been handled forcefully at home. Their person's been weird with them. The person's maybe been frightened or anxious, stressed, and that emotion has communicated itself to the cat. They may feel betrayed by their person. Of course, that's anthropomorphic, but I can't see how that wouldn't be the case. They've lost the sense of control. They're being put into environment, the carrier potentially, if they're not used to it, the car, the clinic where there are strangers and strange smells. They're feeling stressed. They're fearful, and they may already be brought in with pre-existing pain, or it could be that 
what we do to them is painful because, I'm sorry, folks, pretty much everything we do to a cat or to our patients is uncomfortable, everything from thermometer to potentially the way they're being restrained. It's weird having a blood pressure cuff inflated and deflated, having needles stuck into you. All of those things are uncomfortable. I wanted to also mention a concept that while we can do a lot of educating and that engages the brain, ultimately it is our emotions that shape behavior. And they, the car salespeople know this or car manufacturers know this. They really appeal to our emotional aspects with respect to color of the car for women, not being sexist about this, but that is one of the things that they take into consideration. Certainly, safety is a huge thing that they focus on. So emotion shapes behavior. Yes, education does too, but you can educate till the cows come home. And if somebody is really scared, it's going to take a lot more belief and conviction for them to change their behavior than if they emotionally feel good about the situation. The emotional experience affects not only the client, it certainly affects the cat. If the cat's frightened, then they're going to either freeze or act out if they can't flee. And similarly, it also affects us within the clinic. If we are burnt out or we're exhausted or we're just sick of yet another screaming cat and we're frightened that we're going to get hurt and all this sort of stuff, that affects our behaviors as well. So how can we change these things? How can we change this whole scenario? Well, by understanding cats, reducing the threat to the cat, uh, providing extraordinary caring, by stepping into the cat's, imagining what it would be like if we were the cat. If we were the cat and imagining what that experience might be like in the clinic with the people. We've got to slow down, always slowing down with cats. Cat appointments, I really can't speak to dog appointments, but my impression is they need to be longer than dog appointments. In any case, we have to slow down. We want to look at using cat vocalization. We want to respect their sense of smell and put yourself in their skin. So I'm going to talk all about all of those things in the next podcast. There are numerous resources that I'll mention. The AAFP, American Association of Feline Practitioners, Cat Friendly Practice Program. If you're outside of North or South America or the Caribbean, then similar program is run by the International Society of Feline Medicine, the Cat Friendly Clinic Program. Catalyst Council has all kinds of wonderful resources, including teaching your cat how to love the carrier and how to, you know, with clicker training or otherwise, it doesn't have to be traumatic at all. There's the Cat Healthy Program I referred to, as well as Have We Seen Your Cat Lately? All of these last three resources, Catalyst Council, Cat Healthy, and Have We Seen Your Cat Lately, address things beyond the cat-friendly handling. They go into also overall cat health and subtle signs of sickness and all of those things that are really important to know about. And with that, we'll finish up this session. And with that, we must conclude today's Vetfolio podcast on Think Like a Cat, Why Cats Get Stressed. We hope that you've enjoyed this third in our four-part series, and we look forward to you joining us for the fourth and final episode. On behalf of Vetfolio and Merck Animal Health, thank you for participating in today's podcast.